Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. According to the most recent FBI statistics, more than half of all religiously motivated hate crimes in America target Jews. It's a reality that Jews in European society developed strategies to address a long time ago. Taking a cue from those overseas initiatives, AJC recently released its call to action against anti-Semitism to mobilize sectors of American society against the scourge. Evan Bernstein is CEO of Community Security Services, which also has taken cues from efforts to address anti-Semitism in Europe. As Jewish communities celebrate the high holidays, a time when anti-Semitism often and unfortunately spikes, Evan is joining us now to discuss how we can protect ourselves. Evan, welcome to People of the Pod. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I just said that Community Security Services takes its cues from Europe. Can you share a little bit of the history of how Jewish diasporas since the Holocaust have adopted different security models? Absolutely. I really learned about this even more firsthand. I was in Europe visiting our sister organizations just a few months ago in the UK, in France, in Belgium, and in Amsterdam. And really after the Holocaust, uh, the diaspora Jewish communities all except for the United States, implemented a volunteer security uh, best practice. There was a real distrust for local government, a distrust for law enforcement, and Jews felt that they needed to really take security into their own hands and partner when needed with private security or law enforcement, but they needed to be the leaders themselves. And if you look at some of the groups like the CST in the UK and other groups, they are very established groups but that are led by the Jewish community to really protect themselves. And in a lot of the communities, when you're 18, 19 years old, they come in into the volunteer security model at a very young age to participate, to do shifts, to protect their synagogues and Jewish institutions on the holidays, on Shabbat, and for events. And if you look at the United States after the Holocaust, we really started outsourcing right away. We outsourced to private security. We outsourced to off-duty law enforcement. And Jews, for the most part, were not engaged at all in their own security. And that's what led to the founding of CSS in 2007. And then kind of the CSS 2.0, if you will, um, it's really happened since 2020 with our growth nationally to try to really make this something that's mainstream in the United States that, you know, is is established uh, here in the United States as it is in other diaspora communities across the globe. But I have to say, I have, I've not walked into a single Shabbat service without someone greeting me who is clearly there to keep me safe. It seems that you know, synagogues do have good relationships with local law enforcement or private security firms. So why lean on volunteers and, and congregants themselves to do more? So the reality is, and I'm someone that does shift, I'm a regular volunteer for CSS. I'm not a security expert by any stretch. I'm a regular volunteer. We have great security experts on our team that build out all of our curricula. What I realized, even as a volunteer, is when you're dealing with a local law enforcement who's off-duty or a paid private security guard, uh, they are, first of all, they're paid. They're not not doing it uh, completely altruistically. Uh, Secondly, they don't understand the nuances uh, of the Jewish community. They they don't understand the physical plant. 
They do not have a vested interest inside the synagogue where volunteers have their family and their friends inside the facility. They also need help a lot of times with understanding those nuances. As an example, I was on shift as a volunteer on Yom Kippur at my synagogue last Yontif, and the police officer I was standing with, who was off duty, did not know the difference and was asking, why is everybody wearing sneakers instead of shoes? They don't understand the nuance of a talus bag versus a backpack. When there's a simcha or there's a bar bat mitzvah, we know as volunteers that the caterer is likely going to leave the door open and where that's going to happen. And there's going to be other subtle nuances that only a volunteer is going to really be able to pick up upon. And also a seriousness that also when you are as a synagogue paying a lot of money for this additional security, when you are trained as a volunteer, you're not only helping, but you're also ensuring that those people are actually doing their job. In my own synagogue, the off-duty private security guard would a lot of times stay in their car when they're doing security. Once the CSS had a team at the synagogue, we ensured that person was outside. We would do you know, proper sweeps and other things with that person to make sure that they were really doing their job to the best of their ability and what the contract with the synagogue really called for. Because a lot of the volunteers we have are also board members of the synagogue and are invested heavily in the security or sit on the security committee. So for us, it's not either or. It shouldn't just be volunteers. It needs to be a partnership with, with law enforcement and private security. We think that's, that's the, really the best way of going about it. I'm curious how important it is for a congregation or community to be engaged in Jewish advocacy before they really fully embrace this training. In other words, have you found that those who are engaged in fighting anti-Semitism, supporting Israel, are more empowered to or informed about protecting themselves? I think it's interesting. It's not necessarily, I think some of them just have a passion for this because a lot of them learned about it when they were children in Europe. A lot of our leaders actually when they hear about this, they want to get engaged because they were involved in the UK, they were involved in Australia, they were involved in France or Latin America, and they want to get engaged. So for them, it's who they are, it's what they grew up with. I think for some people, it's absolutely about the things you mentioned, Zionism, it's about their Jewish identity. I think for some of them, this is their way of going to synagogue. The funny acronym that a lot of volunteers use for CSS is can't stand synagogue. So for them, this is a way that a lot of them will feel that they're part of the community even though they don't necessarily like going to synagogue to daven, but this is a way for them to feel like they're part of the congregation in a very meaningful way. So I think everybody kind of brings a different reason behind it, but the, the bottom line is they want to protect their friends and family inside the synagogue. And I think that, that you know, if that's a common denominator, then that, that, that's fine by us. It's interesting how everyone has their own story about how they get to uh, standing shift and standing outside. And I got to tell you, for me, it's the most empowering thing I've ever done as a Jew. You know, for years I talked about anti-Semitism, but to do something about it and to actually fight back against anti-Semitism, and I do think that's one piece of it as well for people, is it's security, yes, and we're not trying to replace security guards. We're reporting incidents, we're hardening the target, we're able to help with lockdown, we can, we know the congregation, there's, there's intangibles that volunteers have that no one else has. We're a force amplifier for security or any of the other organizations we're partnered with formally nationally, but I think for a lot of people, they feel that they're fighting against anti-Semitism. I think so many people, especially as we get to the holidays and there's more and more articles and reports about FBI numbers and incidents, we as Jews, like we read about it, we talk about it, we get upset about it, we talk about it around the Rosh Hashanah table, 
but we're not doing specifically anything about it. This is an opportunity for Jews to say, you know what? I'm going to stand up to anti-Semitism. I'm going to actually do something to push back on it. And in the process, I'm going to secure my loved ones, but I'm actually taking a stand myself about anti-Semitism that I know intellectually is on the rise. And I think that's a very unique opportunity for people. It's funny what you say about CSS standing for Can't Stand Synagogue. I think a lot of people consider AJC their way of plugging into Jewish life, doing what they can for the Jewish people. They aren't necessarily members of a synagogue or a religious community, but they are Jewish and proud, and that's why they're involved at AJC. That's their synagogue in some ways. That's their community. No, 100%. I know a lot of people that are very supportive of AJC, on boards of AJC, and that's exactly right. For them, it really is a somewhat second part of their Jewish identity. It's their way, you know, I, you know, going to the UN and going on missions and spending time with other board members, you know, especially with Congressman Deutsch coming in with David Harris. You know, that was really their way of being engaged. And it's, it's super special. And I think that's what we need to do as communal leaders is to try to give people that opportunity. So I do want to ask you, you actually quoted this in a column you recently wrote, the AJC State of Anti-Semitism Report. And it talks about it talks about a number of things, but one of those things being the landscape of threats that American Jews have encountered. And it also lays out the response. 40% of American Jews have changed their behavior because of the perceived rise of anti-Semitism. And I'm curious what you see as you track hate crimes and incidents of anti-Semitism. What kind of response are you seeing? Are you seeing some American Jews retreating? I think so. I think it really depends on the segment. And we're fortunate at CSS, we've reconstructionist synagogue teams, reform, orthodox, conservative. We, we run the gamut. We've actually done trainings in Lakewood on one day with, you know, Hasidic, and then we've done a reconstructionist synagogue on the same day. And I think it's really special. But I do think each segment of the Jewish population looks and feels right now differently somewhat about anti-Semitism and their own safety. I think if you talk to a lot of members of the orthodox space, that are visibly Jewish, wearing a kippot or wearing a talit on Shabbat or dressing in more traditional religious garb, you know, so many of the assaults that have taken place that have been documented are people that are visibly Jewish. So I think people that are more visibly Jewish feel very differently about security, about the security of themselves, the security of their institutions. Uh, they just feel more vulnerable. A lot of times Orthodox synagogues, you know, have a regular minyanum that's meeting throughout the week. So they're in synagogue more. They're in a place that may be targeted more frequently. So I think that there's always more concerns there. But I think, as you saw, especially over the last five years, more and more incidents even taking place with reform, conservative, even reconstructionist synagogues, individuals that have not necessarily identified, you know, or visibly Jewish. I think it's changing. The Orthodox community, it's been there a bit more in the conversations I have with leadership over the last you know, decade, but it's starting to creep now into the parts of the community, especially I saw this even in New York, where so many incidents were taking place in Brooklyn or in Muncie within the Orthodox spaces. And then all of a sudden you started seeing more incidents in Manhattan and, and in synagogues that never had a swastika painted on them ever before. And that's what really led, I think, to the walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. And you had, you know, the entire spectrum of the Jewish population walking over the Brooklyn Bridge because of anti-Semitism, because it was, you know, Tree of Life, and Poway is Chabad, and Muncie was different. Everyone was kind of going through through different pieces of it, but it was all the same thing, that people hated Jews and, and they were being attacked. I think the challenge is also is that it's harder across the board. COVID has hurt attendance in synagogues. 
And I think that has been a big challenge too, is the more you talk about security, it's a challenge because you want to have that embracing people, you know, open door. You want people to feel like they can go to synagogue. You want them to feel the holidays are coming. You don't want to have impediments. And you already had a two year plus impediment of COVID where no one was going. People were getting used to Zoom services. They're getting used to doing the services in their house. They would have their iPad, listen to a, a cantor give a service that, you know, on Friday night and then, and then everyone lights candles and has dinner. Um, and so I think that that is a cadence that for a lot of people was very cathartic during COVID, but now is more of a challenge as we're trying to get people back into the routine of going back to synagogue. And I think for some, you put security into that mix and it creates a natural barrier for the conversation. But I think because the way that things are going, and if you look at the numbers you mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast about the numbers percent of our religious motivated hate crimes are against Jews, you have to intellectually understand that, but you have to also understand the climate that you're in and not have your eyes shut to that, even though it's more difficult right now to get people back in the synagogue. I think finding that balance is going to be critical for synagogue leadership as we get more and more out of COVID. How are volunteers trained to make a congregation or a synagogue less inviting to intruders and more inviting to congregants who just want to feel safe? So for us, it's when we're training individuals, and a lot of them, if you're at a level two, the second level of training, you're working the door, you know, access control, you have people obviously on the perimeter. You don't look for suspicious individuals. You look for suspicious activity. And activity is different than looking at people. That's why we implemented Jews of Color training for our volunteers, unconscious bias training for our volunteers. And on top of that, the full training is about looking for behavior, looking for erratic kind of behavior, certain kind of behaviors that you know, security groups are looking at all over the globe. It's not about the individual, it's about the behavior. And I think that's the critical piece about what we do because you know, synagogues need to be, and individuals need to be welcoming. And if it's a private security guard or an off-duty law enforcement working in conjunction with volunteers, everybody needs to be on that same page. There should be no tolerance for any kind of bias when there's security being done. So I imagine in today's climate, the, the question of whether to arm people besides professional security guards or law enforcement has come up? And how do you handle those conversations, the question of firearms? So we don't discuss the firearms publicly because we don't want to, you know, from a liability standpoint to our volunteers, we can't discuss, you know, security best practices. But our belief is that in order for someone to have firearms, they need to be, you know, very, very well trained. And it's a very big commitment. And again, the SCN model on carrying firearms, we're very close to that as well. And we can't discuss it publicly for reasons like that, but it's a serious topic and it's something that every organization or any individual needs to take with the utmost care before ever even thinking about weapons. So I know this is all about empowering congregants and empowering ourselves, but what should the level of communication be with law enforcement? What advice can you give congregants and congregation leaders out there who are listening? Law enforcement relationship is supremely critical. And we teach this to our volunteers. A lot of our senior volunteers that are on shift, they have speed dial to the local police and they have relationships with the police ongoing. So it's not just a crisis moment. Building relationships is during the quiet time, not during the most difficult time. And most of our volunteers, senior leadership has built that relationship. So as an example, when something, an incident took place when I was on shift, we're right away calling the local police department and they know who we are. They know why we're calling them. And, and so when something happens, you're dealing with someone you have a relationship with, and that's really super critical. And you have to have that ongoing. They need to know 
also what the congregation is doing around security. They need to know if this is a CSS team or what you're doing with the security director locally. What are you doing with your synagogue? There needs to be a solid communication because that's really the most important front line is working with local law enforcement because they are the ones that are ultimately going to be the first responder to an incident that takes place. And you want them to know your place, know your physical plant, know who you are, know the leadership, and have a built-in natural relationship that will help them in that moment of crisis. Well, Evan, thank you so much. Thank you for all you do to empower the Jewish community and, and help American Jews take care of ourselves. We know it's up to everyone, all of society, not just the American Jewish community, but it's certainly up to us as well to play our part. So thank you so much for mobilizing us to do that and training us to do that. Thank you so much for, for AJC and for you to have me on and to talk about this. AJC does such important work and is so critical within the Jewish communal space. And we really appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak to your listeners. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to filmmaker Ken Burns and Lynn Novick in conversation with my colleague Laura Shaw-Frank about the latest documentary on America's failure during the Holocaust. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.